Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Throughout history, there are occasionally people who rise to the top. The super performers. The best of the best. And then the best of those. People who redefine what success looks like in a given field. Orders of magnitude better than anyone who's come before them. They take that goalpost of what an expert looks like, they pick it up like Atlas shrugging the earth, and then they farmers carry that goalpost of possibility hundreds of miles into the void. A mixture of hard work, talent, that elusive it factor. These people don't even look like the same species. Michael Jordan, Warren Buffett, Musashi, Michael Phelps, Genghis Khan, Mike Tyson, Leonidas, the list goes on. And there's a thought process that these people are just geniuses. But if there's one thing I've learned on this damn podcast adventure, it's that genius is grown. One part grit, one part skill development, one part just not fucking quitting. Add in a hard dick and that goosebumps feeling one gets when the breakdown hits and you're pretty close to the ingredients of genius. If you made it through that fucking insane expertise and expert performance series, you saw that there is no evidence that geniuses, aka all those people that I just rattled off, actually have a larger computer. They're just common people with an uncommon obsession to be the best. And if we spent any longer coming up with that list of super performers, those genre-redefining giants, a name would undoubtedly come up. A man who almost single-handedly and through just force of fucking will decided he was going to be the best wrestler to ever walk the earth. A forefather we all owe our allegiance to, Dan Gable. So my first time um, seeing this name, Dan Gable, was in uh, my high school wrestling room. Just a den of pain, suffering, inhuman torture, and spiritual growth. We had a poster on on the wall uh, of his picture just looking hard as hell. And uh, it says, once you've wrestled, everything else in life is easy. And I remember staring at that poster when I was when I was as close to literally starving as I've ever been. Cutting weight, just trying to fucking suck strength from that poster. And then a few years later, I remember reading a blog post by Tim Ferriss who said Dan Gable was also a deep inspiration to him. You know, Gable's philosophy of aggression. If you're up two, get up three. If you're up 10, get up 15, win the match on points. Always take it to the another level. There's always another level. And for this book in particular, I remember reading this when I just left Angie's List, you know, many moons ago. I had six weeks of fun employment where I already had a job offer and was ready to go at my new job, but it didn't start until six weeks from now. So I just had 
nothing to do. Naive and hopeful, filled with optimism and self-belief, in those six weeks, I decided to prepare my mind for war. I read this book. I read Michael Jordan's biography. I read a book on investing. I meditated on the sacrifice I was about to make because I knew that I was going to try to make it in one of the hardest industries there is, Wall Street. And I was, I was just coming to terms with the fact that I wasn't ever going to do martial arts again. You know, my back was still seven out, of, seven out of 10 fucked at that time. And I just decided I was going to sell up to three years of my life with a single-minded focus on getting rich as hell. I didn't know what was in store for me, but I knew I needed strength. I knew I had to surround myself with top performers, even if it was just absorbing their wisdom through diffusion from this book. And so I slowly read and internalized this book. And no matter where I find myself now, I know that if Dan Gable were competing against me, he'd crush me into the earth and be better than me at whatever I am doing. And this whiskey sponsored by podcast. So who is Dan Gable and what is this book? Well, Dan Gable, uh, born in 1948, is a former world's fucking best wrestler ever and coach. Uh, he was a two-time NCAA Division I national wrestling champion. He was a world gold medalist and an Olympic gold medalist, which that's absolutely insane. So like for a little bit of context, so I was a pretty good high school wrestler, got knocked out in the match to go to state, did not wrestle in college. And so I could go into any MMA room and I was shittier for sure at jujitsu, but like I was, I was probably like one of the better wrestlers in the room and I didn't wrestle in college. And so, you know, you take any division three, so not as good as division two, not as definitely not as good as division one college wrestler though, who started for four years and you put them in that MMA room and they will be the best. You take a run of the mill division one college wrestler, put him in that MMA room and he's it's just like, wow, this guy should be in the UFC. Dan Gable makes that guy look like a bitch. You know, that's like being the best warrior in Leonidas's group of 300 or the best shot at SEAL Team 6. Savage. And he finished his college career 117 and 1. He lost his final match in his final season. And let's just say um, he took that personally. He took deeper lessons from that loss than most people actually legit, no joking, would take from personal bankruptcy. He then moved on, went on to coach wrestling for over 20 years at the University of Iowa, where he built 152 All-Americans, 45 national champions, 106 Big Ten champions, 12 Olympians, and won 15 NCAA Division I titles for his team out of the 21 years he was a coach. Jesus Christ, that is the type of person we're dealing with. And this book, uh, these are his stories and lessons, you know, told from his perspective on what it takes to be successful in wrestling, but also in life. Now, Dan was much too busy to write this shit like totally by himself. And so uh, he got a he got a co-author, Scott Schulte. So two intros here, one from Dan, one from Scott, Dan Gable. Olympic Wrestling Trials, April 2012, Carver Hawkeye Arena, Iowa City, Iowa. A writer named Scott Schulte approached me recently and started a conversation. 
He caught me in an emotional state, just as the Hawkeyes' last chance to make the Olympic freestyle team was lost when Brent Metcalf dropped a match by a Criteria tiebreaker. So, I, like, Brent Metcalf barely lost the match. It was especially tough because 75% of the sold-out crowd that day were Iowa fans and thought Metcalf had actually won. While it was already an emotional moment, Scott approached me and brought up the possibility of doing an article for an internet media outlet about another very difficult subject for my personal life, my sister's murder when I was a teenager. I agreed, and as that project developed, Scott suggested we do a book of Gable stories. Having many such stories from over the years, I thought it was a good idea, but I figured it's probably only going to end up being all talk and nothing would come from it. But before long, we were actually getting work done. And now we have a book. So here we are. Enjoy. So you'll see this dude's attitude, but he's like, yeah, you know, this fucking Scott guy approached me and like, clearly nothing was going to come from it. But it's like, you know, hey, I'll, I'll hang out with you until you until you pussy out. And then, you know what? Scott never did and we have the opportunity to read this book. Introduction, Scott Schulte. I've made a career out of telling stories. On most occasions, they're stories I enjoy telling. The stories I tell have landed on the pages of newspapers and magazines, and I've always been like, what a great job I have. Through such experiences, I developed an idea for a different kind of biography, much like the one you're reading now. Instead of some long fucking exhaustive bullshit that he words better than what I just said. I imagined each chapter was going to be a standalone story from the person's life. After hashing out the details and how I would create this book, I was faced with a challenge of finding the person that I found interesting and whose name was big enough to carry a full page of stories. And then I went to the 2012 Olympic wrestling trials. We all have childhood heroes. The athlete I most admired was Dan Gable. I was a wrestler, and as someone who graduated from high school in 1982, wrestling began and ended with Gable. Everything I heard in practice or at camps or clinics would always include some story about Dan Gable. If I did not have the posters and cutouts from magazines, I might have honestly not believed he was real. When the opportunity came to actually meet Gable at the 2012 Olympic trials, I took it. I was nervous, but I had a job to do. I asked for the article. It went well, so I eventually asked him about this book, and he said yes. Thus, I was given the opportunity to write a book with and about my childhood hero, and here we are. Uh, so my, my much more cultured friend uh, tells me that there's two types of biographies. A biographer is stuck between two choices. One is to tell interesting, awesome stories. Maybe leave out whole big important factual things, but just it's like a really cool story. The other is to be exhaustively factual and technically correct. So this book, this book is closer to the first. You know, it's a collection of stories, lessons, and principles from the man himself. You know, so think of this as less of a college class and more of flying across the ocean, sitting next to your terminally ill grandpa, who is a World War II veteran, then built a business empire. He realizes he has weeks to live. He also realizes he didn't really do that good of a job of teaching you because you're a bitch. You guys start pounding whiskeys and he teaches you everything you need to know to be a man in the 12 hour flight to England. That is what this book's about to be. Into the first story. Chapter 1, Growing Up. My father always had a proud look in his eye when people would ask him, when did you know your son was going to be a great wrestler? 
The story he always tells goes like this. I was born October 25th, 1948 in Waterloo, Iowa, and our family's house at that time was small. Soon after bringing me home, my father heard me crying in my crib one night. When he made his way to the bedroom to my crib, he found me on my back fighting to get off of it. I was actually bridging up on my head to get off my back. Even after just a couple days of life, I wanted nothing to do with being on my back. Okay, so I, I included that because it's funny, but also like that attitude right there is why I was never good at jujitsu. Because, hey, dude, I had a wrestling coach who jokingly, but also with this kind of crazy look in his eye, he would say, wrestlers don't even sleep on their backs. And, and if he caught you laying on your back on the floor, he would come up and he would kick you until you laid on your side. God damn it, Coach Simona, chill. So I always kind of just harbored this deep prejudice against jujitsu because jujitsu is like, you know, use a bunch of angles and lay on your back. So I would always call it angry snuggling. And when I did do jujitsu, I would just use wrestling, strength, and stubbornness to win against intermediate opponents. But like, I clearly would have gotten murked by anyone who actually was good at jujitsu. But uh, that attitude, a wrestler doesn't even sleep on their backs. Dan Gable, he came out of the, he came out of that, that prison wallet, not even liking to be on his back. Whoa. So as that, uh, as that backless man started growing up, who, what was he like as a kid? Well, uh, two stories. One, he tells the story of being four years old. Uh, they're on a long car trip. He's super bored. He starts playing with his sister's purse. He holds it up. The wind catches it, and it goes flying out the window. And then, because it seems like a really good idea, he proceeds to hide in the cornfield for an hour. It took them over an hour to finally find me, and when they did, I was really in trouble. This being many decades ago, the punishment was fast and swift. Let's just say there were definitely consequences. You know, my cornfield adventure was not my first nor my last. I was never one to hurt people or do anything illegal but I was a little devil. So at four, so at a baby, he's like, I, I'm never going to even, I don't even want a back. You take it back, God. But uh, he has to have it. And so he, he doesn't even ever lay on it. And then when he's four, he hides from his parents. He hides from his whole family for an hour in the cornfield and then gets, uh, we'll say, child abused. Um, next story. On one occasion, when I was about five, our family made a trip to Black's department store in downtown Waterloo, Iowa. Back then, the elevators were run by an operator. As the four of us crowded into the store's elevator with several strangers, the operator asked, which floor please? I quickly yelled out, fifth floor, bastard. Swearing was a common part of my parents' vocabulary, but my mother quickly shushed me and my father scowled, embarrassed. As the bell sounded and reached the fifth floor, the door opened, some of the people walked out and I followed them. Then I looked back and I saw that my family was still on the elevator and the doors were closing. They were angry with me for embarrassing them and stayed on the elevator to teach me a lesson. Things were certainly different than they are today. So he goes, fifth floor, bastard, to the, the elevator attendant. His family's like, cool, have fun being dead. And they just leave him on the fifth floor and they take the elevator back down. I was so mad and upset. When I turned back around, there was an older lady bent over right in front of me. I just reacted. I took a chomp out of her rear. To this day, 
I don't really know why. She screamed, and that was the end for me. I was in big trouble. So he, he calls the elevator attendant bastard. His parents leave him to die on the fifth floor. First thing he sees, an ass. And so he's fucking biting asses at, at age five. Jesus Christ, future Olympian. A small crowd of store employees and shoppers quickly came to see what all the fuss was about. I had just bitten a complete stranger. Finally, my parents and sister came up to the fifth floor to claim me, and when they found out that I'd bitten a lady, they were even madder than they were before. He's just like, hello, young Dan. It's 1953. You know what I'm allowed to do? Probably kill you. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to whip you. When we got back to the car, my father popped me in the head with his ring finger. Later at home, my mother used a ruler to show her displeasure. To teach young hellion like me some lessons, my parents turned to the YMCA and got me into wrestling. So like, Jesus Christ, this kid, this kid's going to kill us at the, at the age of six. He, you know, he, he's a cannibal. You know what we need to get him into? Wrestling. And so he loved it right away. Uh, he'd just gotten done with wrestling practice and it had gone really well for him. Uh, unfortunately, he says, I ran into a problem. The kid I had just wrestled was hassling me. The match had been pretty one-sided, aka Dan, Ray, uh, uh, what? Uh, Dan beat him, and uh, now he wanted to fight me. I tried to do the right thing, and I said, no fighting, but then he punched me, and it was more than I could take, and we began to brawl. Our fight continued until our two fathers stepped in to end things. We later became friends, and we both wondered how long our dads had watched before they stepped in. After all, back in those days, no one jumped in to break up fights. So that's the type of person. He came, he came out of his mom not even having a back. He hid in the corn at four for an hour. He bit a lady's ass when he was five. And then in his like first or second wrestling practice, he got into a brawl. But still, I don't think you could look at that and immediately say, guaranteed Olympian. But it takes a bit for this story to develop. Chapter two, we're fast forwarding a little bit. You know, this kind of jumps around in time. And so now picture Dan Gable. He's a successful coach. He's already done all those awesome achievements. And he's, he's thinking back. Chapter two, tunnel vision. 50 plus years is a long time to have an emotion locked away. When unlocked, a buried experience can come back as if it just happened yesterday. One of my earliest experiences as an athlete and one of my first coaching lessons took place at the University of Iowa's old swimming pool located in the former field house. And so way later in life, Dan's back and he happens to be back in that swimming pool. And he says, uh, standing in the locker room, in that moment, standing there in 2011, a memory surfaced just as fresh as it had ever been. Like many athletes, my story began at a local YMCA. But it wasn't wrestling that I first did well at. First, it was swimming. Um, this was where I had my first taste of winning and I liked it a lot. When I finished first in the state in backstroke, I knew I really liked winning. I'd made a name for myself with my prowess in the pool. As an 11-year-old, this was something I enjoyed. After those six weeks, we returned to the University of Iowa pool to compete in the regional championships. The meet included the best swimmers from Iowa and several surrounding states, but I was ready to keep my winning streak alive. Something else happened, though. I took second place in the backstroke to Tom, one of his friends. This was my first real taste of losing in my whole life. The initial sting of defeat was made even worse by the fact that I had lost to Tom. He was a great kid 
who is very successful in business today, but I beat him every day in practice and at every competition. Yet, that day, he had somehow beaten me. I took it very hard. I felt that I had let everybody down. The dagger of that pain was almost too much for me to bear as an 11-year-old. 50 years later, when I stood again in the locker room with Tom Brands and the 2011 team and looked down the tunnel to the pool, I felt that sting all over again. The feeling of losing and disappointing everyone washed over me as though it was yesterday. So he's having a flashback to the first time he really lost, and he's like viscerally feeling it. Think about that. He was like eight when he realized, holy fucking shit, I love winning. And on the flip side, he starts this story off like it's a traumatic event, like 50 years is a long time for an emotion to get buried. But he's not talking about the, the death of his sister. He's not talking about, you know, a car accident he watched, or the family dog. No, he's talking about losing in a swimming match as a 10-year-old in the backstroke. Think of the fucking psychological makeup of somebody who can still call that emotion up on demand. I mean, losing was just like legit so fucking traumatic that he just, he spent his whole life avoiding it. The drive home to Waterloo that night after the swim meet was a long one. As my family made the 90 minute ride, I sat in the back seat of the car staring out at the blackness. I remained inconsolable. I replayed the race over and over in my mind. I had to figure out what went wrong. How had I been beaten by someone I'd never lost to in nearly 20 races? Even though I've been using lessons I learned that night at the University of Iowa pool my entire career, I hadn't thought about that event in years. My visit to the pool locker room and the tunnel in 2011 brought it all back like it was yesterday. Even after 50 years, I'm glad it did. It was a good reminder of lessons learned in life. You know, and I'm not, I don't even know if that's like, like a good, <laughs> like that, that's an unhealthy reaction, an unhealthy relationship to winning and losing. Like when he starts to win, it's like he's the world's biggest drug addict and he just loves it. When he starts to lose, he's like suicidal. But, you know, that, that makeup is what drove him to be this. You know, it's like greatness and madness are cousins. Um, quick story time. So I personally am not good at much and I never pick things up quickly. But if there's one thing I am also good at, it is being the worst loser ever, blowing losing way out of proportion and hating to lose so much that I'm willing to do anything to avoid that. I'm actually recording this on a day of PTO that I took so that I could deer hunt for the rest of the day today so that I could beat my wife in a bet, AKA not lose and as i'm reading dan gable go through this it, it brings back a a similar memory for me so i grew up playing soccer um and, and then you know i was like a good goalie but like i was just kind of you know like eight uh and then i got i got into taekwondo when i was like nine or ten and so i picked up the kicking pretty well because of soccer but as soon as i started sparring I legit realized that this is like the only thing in life that really matters and that's all I wanted to do. And so from like 10 to 13, I got, I, I, I don't know, I'd be curious to graph it on a scale, but I would say I got Dan Gable level obsessed and uh, I improved so much. So like sounding, soundly beating adults as a 13 year old, 
um, and I'd I'd never really tasted failure. You know, I'd had I'd had hard matches, but you know, I'd always been able to buckle down to figure it out. You know, like okay, cool, I, I kind of got screwed up in in this in this practice. You know, this class, and uh, let me go back and let me spend like a week, and then I tweaked it, and I'm like, hey, cool, I'm better. I figured it out, and I just always been able to use sheer stubbornness and a good you know, understanding of Taekwondo technique to win. But all that changed when one of my peers, who I was better than, like way better than, started football, took six months off, just lifted a bunch and played football, and then came back to Taekwondo and started kicking my ass. I was more skilled. He took time off. I was better than him. He should come back worse. But he came back better than me. So over like a period of nine months, he beat me in three different tournaments uh, by basically just like out-muscling me and being better at boxing. Because I'd gotten to be like a really good kicker and I kept honing and honing and honing that. But I kind of ignored hands because it was like a little bit of a weak point. But I, dude, I was just winning without hands. But losing to this kid, dude, it bothered me on a spiritual level. So think of like Vegeta, so angry that Goku's stronger, turning up turning up the gravity in the chamber to a hundred times Earth's gravity and risking death, purely fueled on the knowledge that Kakarot was better in all ways. I am the Prince of Saiyans. How can Kakarot be better? So after this third loss, so like I lost to this dude three times. Like I'd, I've been the best and I lost to this guy three times. Like once, mm, it's fluke. Twice, oh God damn it. Three times, shit be changing. I went to my instructor. I humbled myself and said, tell me what I need to do to beat John. And he said, hey, you need to get bigger and you need to learn boxing. And I was like, got it. And so I did it for a year. I didn't throw a kick. I went from like the absolute best minus this outlier of fucking John to lower middle of the pack because like I was the best at kicking. I was not that good at hands. And I started jacking steel, trying to get huge. So for like a whole year, all I did was train as hard as I fucking could with the single-minded focus of beating John. Eventually, we were neck and neck. And then I started to beat him so bad that uh, he eventually quit Taekwondo. Now, I'm not saying he quit because of me, but uh, I emerged with a, a great life lesson about move towards your weaknesses you know i was avoiding hands i needed to invest in loss i needed to suck to ultimately become better b if you obsess so fucking hardcore and you focus everything in your entire life at winning you can win c i am not mature enough to lose so i might as well just win i actually uh found this dude john on linkedin a few years ago and i messaged him saying like 50% of who I am as a person can be attributed to you beating me in those three Taekwondo tournaments. And like, it took him a while to respond. And I think he fucking like barely remembered me. And he's like, um, thanks, man. I, aren't you that fucking weird kid who did like a blood debt against me and made me quit Taekwondo because of your antisocial competitive behavior? It's like, mm, yeah, thanks, man. And so I share all that because A, Dan Gable's a maniac. Um, but B, I'm not even saying that that's healthy. But, you know, hey, Dan Gable was like that, so I'm clearly fine. And as we're walking through Dan Gable's uh, stories, we got another one titled Molly Putts. And if there's one thing 
that we will all leave this story with. It's that there's a lot of things we could be in life, but praise Jesus, we are never a Molly Putz. One winter night in 1962, a single set of headlights broke through the immense darkness of a slowing snowstorm just outside Waterloo, Iowa. My family drove back from one of my earliest wrestling matches at Junior High Showdown with a neighboring school and it had not gone the way I had planned. I was pinning my opponent when the kid bridged up on his neck and somehow rolled me over on my back and pinned me. I was so upset. When we got home, I dragged myself into the house. I was still angry and confused over losing and I pouted my way up to the bedroom. With a deep sigh, I did the only thing I could think of, lie down and sulk. After all, sulking and feeling sorry for oneself often appears to be the only viable option when dealing with sadness, frustration, or any other negative emotion. Still, I was pouting and feeling sorry for myself in the home of Mac and Katie Gable, and that behavior would not be tolerated. Eventually, my mother entered my bedroom, and rather than coddling me, oh, son, you did so good, son, she took a more aggressive approach. You know what you are, not even saying you know what you're acting like, you know what you are, what, mom? You're a Molly Putz, Molly Putz. It was a term my mom used for when we were feeling sorry for ourselves. Molly putts. That term cut deep to our hero's core. Molly putts. Blast. Never. I refuse. Don't you ever call me that again, woman. Dan, you need to stop feeling sorry for yourself and be a man. You know what? The driveway needs to be shoveled, and I'd like you. No, wait. I'm telling you. Go outside and get the shoveling done. I was mad. My mother had just called me out, called me a molly putz, and it was cold outside. I was tired, and I was still mad that I lost. I put my boots and jacket on. I went outside, and I grabbed the shovel. The cold air bit my face as I scooped the first pile of snow, and I tossed it to the side. Then I did it again and again. As I scooped, something started to churn in my stomach like a monster looking for a way out. This monster was anger and determination, and I was about to unleash it all over our neighborhood. I attacked our driveway. I shoveled snow so fast it looked like I was a snowblower. I was almost running as I completely focused on removing the snow from our driveway. Then, when I was done, I went to our neighbors and I shoveled their driveway. Then I went to the next house and the next house and the next house. My anger had turned into something positive. I didn't want to be a molly putz, so I kept shoveling the driveway on my street until I worked myself into exhaustion. It felt good to work out that anger, so I just kept shoveling and shoveling until it was gone. That night proved I was not a molly putz. Throughout childhood and youth, my desire to never be called that name often drove me. There were no Molly Putzes in the Gable family. So you can see, he's a, he's a common guy. He's got a common body. He's not even that good at wrestling when he starts. But you know what he's, you know what's uncommon? His, his psychological makeup and his hatred of losing or being called a Molly Putz. Getting a job. In the summer of 1965, I had just won the Iowa State High School Championships in the 103 weight class. I continued to lift weights and get stronger, but my father had an even better idea. I was stronger than I looked, and my father knew how much I liked lifting weights, but he told me he had a tougher training program for me that summer. 
my father set me up with a job working for Martinson Construction, a company that is still in business today. My day consisted of manual labor and it was hard work, especially in the summer months. My first day on the job, I kept thinking about what my parents had taught me about work. They always said, when you get a job, you have to work very hard and very smart. If you don't do those two things, you'd get fired. That made me real nervous. <laughs> so, like, 11-year-old, 13-year-old, whatever, Dan Gable, like, even the fucking possibility of not being the best, that was given, I was given freshman Dan Gable the meat sweats. On my first day, another new employee and I were put into a basement where the cement walls were already in place. There were two piles of sand, and we were given shovels and instructed to move the piles and make them even with the top of the first row of cement blocks. That basement was hot, musty, filled with dust and offered no ventilation. Those things were not important to me. I wanted to work hard and not be a molly putz. I started working and just attacking the sand, working like I did that night with the snow shuffling. I just went 100 miles per hour. I wanted to get it done right and get it done quickly. In 30 minutes, I was completely drenched in sweat. I finished a task that normally took two hours. I had blisters on my hands, but I felt great. I was working hard. When I looked over to the other pile, the other new employee was nowhere to be found. He had quit on the spot. Either way, I was alone and my boss told me to move the other pile of sand. Not a problem for me and I worked with a vengeance. When I was done with that, I went to my boss and asked what next. He then got tasked with unloading a truckload of cement blocks. They were heavy and I had to carry them over to a pile. It was tough, but I just kept working as hard as I could. Throughout that summer, I eventually went on to do all kinds of hard labor. I was always moving blocks, digging ditches, mixing cement, moving wooden planks, swinging a sledgehammer. It was great. I became a workaholic. And so I actually left that apart, but initially, you know, Dan's dad was like, okay, my kid is like pretty good at wrestling, but like there's a decent chance he's a cannibal. So uh, we need to teach him about work. And so Dan's dad paid the owner of this company. He's like, hey, how about I'll pay you Dan's wages and then you pay Dan. So really like the owner of the company didn't, he got a free employee from a tax perspective and Dan's dad was able to like take care of his son by paying for his summer job basically but after about a week on the job my father received a visit from jerry martinson the owner of the company he told my father mr gable i appreciate you paying the wages for your son but i can't continue to have you do that i appreciate what you're doing for him but we just can't continue to do this with you paying us to pay him we'll pay him <laughs> so basically dan gable was like this guy felt like Dan Gable was such a good worker that this guy felt morally suspect, not actually just paying Dan himself. Uh, so a few lessons here from me just digging through this. Um, first, so he was he was the 103 pounder. So he's kind of like a tiny little guy. You know, our 103 pounder, like some of us still cyber bully him for, for not making weight because um, he missed weight a couple times. But, uh, and he was nothing. Like, so physical strength, you know that he wasn't the most physically strong but the key here is he just tried his fucking best uh he he pushed his body to its physical limits so think like meaning he couldn't have done any better if he was a machine his body was the limiting factor and 
I think it's interesting to me because he applied that mindset to wrestling and was super successful. But then he immediately applied that mindset to working at a construction company and he became equally successful. He was so good that the owner of the construction company was like, hey, Mr. Gable, I can't do this under the table deal because Dan's like eight times better than any of my employees. I'm sorry, I'll pay him. Regardless of who was paying me, I quickly became a commodity for the company. The hard work continued as the method to my man madness became obvious to the older employees. They knew I was using this job as a way to work out. They understood my goals and purpose, moving fast while doing difficult tasks so they made sure to keep me busy with hard work. If things were slow, they would have me move a pile of cement blocks from the front of the house to the back and back again. <laughs> now, I love how he had such a good attitude that that's how he remembers it. Maybe another interpretation is these people, you know, grown men working on a construction crew, they had resigned themselves to their lot in life. You know, they're like, you know what? I'm 33. This is life. It's cool. I can, I've got beer money. It's fine. And then they have to deal with this extremely gung-ho new guy who was 14 and making them all look bad. In an effort to get him to chill, they made up fake tasks for him. Hey, move those rocks from over there to over there. Dan's like, hell yeah. There we go. Move them back. Hell yeah. But even that was incapable of making young Dan Gable chill. He says, the job for me was perfect. In fact, I saw it more as a chance to work out than earn money. But getting to do both at the same time was the best. Adding to the physical labor of the job, I started challenging the men on the crew to wrestling matches when one, when lunch was over. So you're that 33-year-old guy. You're like, God damn it, fuck this kid. And then, you know, I just I just made him move blocks from, you know, 100 yards from the left to 100 yards to the right and back six times. And now he's like, hey, you guys want to wrestle? And I'm like, you know, I'm 190, a little bit fat. I got to dip in, but I lifted some in my life. Yeah, I'll wrestle this fucking kid. And then 14-year-old, 103-pound, guaranteed how much he sweat. He's like a 100-pound kid. This 100-pound kid kicks my ass. Sometimes the men would take me up on the offer, but the matches always ended up the same way. They were quite a bit bigger than me, but none of them could ever beat me. And then Dan just like kicks my ass and is like, that's right. And then he goes back and he shovels a whole fucking basement by himself with a, with a shovel, like with a hand shovel. Just imagine coming into contact with a creature like 14-year-old Dan Gable. Even that grizzled 32-year-old construction worker, you know, they might get a renewed hope that anything's possible through hard work and gain a grudging respect for this fucking maniac. My days were exhausting. I worked this way from 7 in the morning until about 5 in the evening. In addition, three days a week, our wrestling team would have open mat wrestling practice at the high school, so I'd go from working all day, then wrestle for a solid hour. By 6.30 p.m., I was home where I ate dinner and I immediately fell asleep. I even worked on Saturdays for five hours and would often run to and from the job site. To top it off, my hands were all torn up from carrying things and always had blisters during that summer. But I got more physical. I gained seven pounds of muscle. I continued to practice wrestling. I earned people's respect and I earned some money. I loved the summer of 1965. Now, a word of caution to this tale. I think that's the correct attitude. But taken too far, that attitude can turn into 
getting a World War I mouth disease called trench mouth and not eating for 12 days. But if you want to learn about that, if you want to learn that, isn't that the right mindset? There's something different? What are you doing? What's going on? You're going to have to tune in next time to the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's my pretties, is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, The Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.